the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Tom, easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour is uh, Jenny Elder Moak, the author of a new book called Curse of the Spectre Queen, which uh, has been described as female Indiana Jones meets Tomb Raider with... uh, a uh, Roaring Twenties backdrop. We're going to find out how all that converged in this book from the author herself who joins me by phone. Hi, Jenny. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Um, now, this is not your first book. Your first book was, uh, oh, kind of a different take on uh, the Robin Hood legend. and um, But told in a very different way and now you've got curse of the specter queen with a roaring 20s backdrop do you like taking stories and turning them on their side a little bit you know i didn't think that i did until my first two books (laughs) exactly (laughs) that so i i think what i really love about it is i love taking something old and timeless and making it feel new and fresh, but still respecting the source material, you know, because those, I, I love Robin Hood stories. I love Indiana Jones and, you know, that archaeological action-adventure genre. And so I think I just gravitate towards those kind of stories because they were told so well in the first place, and I, you know, I kind of want to take my own shot at the canon. You know, it's interesting, this this blends um, ancient relics and the 
A Magical World of Mystery. I read something in a release about the book. I, I read that phrase. But it, it does kind of squeeze magic and mystery and ancient relics all together. Is setting it against the Roaring Twenties a way of making it more contemporary? Well, I think that my initial attraction to the Roaring Twenties was that that was actually a really, that was kind of a pivotal moment in archaeological, in, in real archaeological history. Um, the tomb of King Tutankhamun was discovered in 1923, and that sort of revolutionized ah. the, the whole field of discovery. I mean, that was genuinely the discovery of the millennium. That was the discovery of their time. And it, I mean, people created salons to discuss archaeology. It was, there were all kinds of new digs that were funded. And so it felt like a really, really exciting time to take a young character who is excited and interested in that field and then and put her in the middle of basically like the renaissance of archaeology. So I, I think it makes it feel, it takes ancient cultures and makes them feel present and makes you realize how they're still affecting us today. But that's also, that was just a really exciting time. If you wanted to go dig for ancient cultures and, and their secrets, the, the Roaring Twenties was really the time to do it. It felt like the whole world was just opening up to it. In researching and putting the book together and, and having looked at that period and its relevance to archaeology, did you garner any sense of, of why archaeology was so big in that time period? Well, I think a lot of it was um, wealthy British people who that was kind of their, or that was their way of like summering, honestly. It was, it's really, it's really curious. It's not something we think out. It's such a professional field now that we don't realize that most of archaeology that was done before, say, like the 1970s was done by people who privately funded their own excursions by amateurs. They didn't have a lot of, like, field of, of study in school for it. It was something that people learned in the field, and they funded it themselves. Or they had, you know, donors who funded it for them. So I think that um, it was an interesting time. <laughs> like I said, and, it was kind and, of transitional. It was going from being privatized to actually they were really a lot of archaeologists, because a lot of it was just treasure hunters, honestly. And it was it had a real, I don't think a lot of people know this, it had a real, like, Wild West vibe to it. Like, uh, Howard Carter, <laughs> the man who discovers the Tomb of Tutankhamun, he rode through the desert with pistols because he would get waylaid by, uh, by tomb raiders, literal tomb raiders. They were, especially after he made the discovery, and it was, like, the discovery, it was, like, the last big tomb that they found in the Valley of the Kings. So there was there was like a lot of it was it could be really violent and scary in in that time period. It wasn't this sort of sedate finding you know pottery shards and brushing them off kind of approach to it. It could get really prickly, and and yet maybe not as brutal as big game hunting. Well. 
hopefully not. <laughs> but you, I mean, you would be surprised. People, because those that you could, you could still, even today, you can fetch a pretty penny on the, the black market for ancient relics. So. <laughs> Well, and I'm fascinated by those kinds of stories, whether it's uh, Tomb Raider or Indiana Jones or or even the the um, Nicolas Cage movies, the, the National Treasure movies. Um, I, I love yeah. those kinds of things. But this is the first of a series, and you wrote a book before this, as I mentioned, called Hood, um, which got a lot of raves. Um when you know a book is launching a series, is the writing different than the writing for a one-off like Hood? That's an excellent question. So the, there are different kinds of series, and what I really love about uh, so the the main character in Kirk's Perspective Queen is Samantha Knox, Sam Knox, and so it's her series is about her archaeological adventures. And what I really love about this series is that each book is kind of a standalone adventure in the same way that you can watch Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and not have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark and still be able to watch it and enjoy it and know what's going on. That's sort of the approach that I took with this series as well, that if you came into it, there are... There are Easter eggs there for people who know the characters and know their history, and you can follow along and, and hopefully fall in love with them a little bit more every book. But each book is also its own encapsulated adventure. And so I really wanted readers to be able to come in to the series at any point and enjoy it, regardless of whether or not they had read the books that had come before. So I think for people who have to set up big, elaborate storylines throughout multiple books, like, you know, Game of Thrones or something like that. That's a whole world <laughs> of writing and preparation that I I was not prepared for. So I said, let's just make them stand alone. <laughs> um, when you started writing, you had already been involved in publishing at an independent publisher in Austin. You'd worked there for several years. What made you decide to write yourself, and how did having been in the publishing business uh, aid you in how to maybe do it and, and get published? Well, I have always loved books and reading stories, and that was part of what drew me to working for the publisher I worked for uh, when I graduated college in Austin. And so I think I was I was always going to eventually get there. I think that was a step to say, oh, maybe I want to work in this industry tangentially. I'm not I'm not ready. I'm not you know I'm not brave enough to take on the writing myself, but let me get to know the industry itself. But I think what it really set me up for, but to this day, I'm still grateful for the experience. It really set me up for the business side because there really are two completely different sides to to being an author. There is the, the writing side, which is just you and the page in front of you and the story in your head and 
it can feel, it can really feel like you just live in your own head, especially if you're in the middle of trying to create a new story. But then the publishing side, it's, it's business, you know, it's, it's moving copies, it's doing radio interviews, it's, it's um, connecting with people on social media. It's a whole different side to your brain. And sometimes I think that can be really, that can be really jarring for first-time authors to come up against a lot of those business decisions because this is their baby. It's their creative heart and then putting that out in the world for people to consume as you know as an entertainment product is a real it's a real learning experience but I already got to see that side of it without having to put my heart out in the world first (laughs) so I kind of came into it understanding that it's it's even when it feels personal it's not personal it really is business and you kind of have to separate those two worlds so that when you're putting your heart out there you're not you're not like immediately letting it get stomped on you know there's a little bit you need like a little bit of of separation so I kind of came into it knowing you're going to have to learn to separate a little bit if you want to survive long term (laughs) more about Sam Knox and the curse of the specter queen with author Jenny Elder Moak straight ahead Staying here inside It's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place with magical charms, indoors, indoors, indoors.
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More about Sam Knox and the Curse of the Spectre Queen with author Jenny Elder Moak straight ahead. How do stories like this get into your head? You were talking about, you know, kind of being in your, your head when you're working on a story. How, do, how does the story get there? And what is the writing process like for you? So I think stories always kind of become, they're like an amalgamation of their of different sources. There's always like a nugget of inspiration that kind of starts it out. And I think for me, that nugget of inspiration was my personal favorite film is the Mummy from the one with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz, and uh, I think it was like came out in nineteen ninety nine. And uh, when I saw that movie, it like changed my brain. That I was, I was like, oh, this is so, this is like a perfect film for me. It's the big action, big adventure. These lovable characters who are funny, and you want to root for them, and you want to see them succeed. But it's also just a really thrilling story that that tries to bring in elements of, of real cultures that existed. And for me, it was the same thing on my first book, Hood, that my like sweet spot in storytelling is taking fictional characters and setting them in real historical settings. So for Curse of the Specter Queen, as much as possible all of the historical details are are real and we're and I research them and and try to work them into the story as much as possible. So the setting for the Roaring Twenties, the uh, knowledge around the Celtic mythology, the, there's a, a whole big like national treasure level sequence, uh, treasure hunt in medieval Dublin. So going through and finding these real places and knowing their history and figuring out how to tie them into the story. That is really what I enjoy doing as, as a storyteller because it's what I like to read. I, like, I call it, oops, you learn something, which is that you're reading this book and you're going along and you think you're just having fun and then you got duped into learning something about history. <laughs> and so... I love that. Cause it's I, such a I, do, I do, too. Place. You're preaching to the choir there, because I love those kinds of stories yeah. as well. And and for the same reason, I like cool, historical like fiction. Of, yes, and that's why I love it, because in school, it's like a list of this person went to this battle on this date. And then yeah, this names and dates and places. President on this yes, exactly. And the, it really takes the, the humanity out of history, but that's, I mean, once you start learning who the people were and what made them tick, then you start to see how absolutely that crazy history really was. Which, which comes first for you, Jenny, the, uh, the story, and then you cast characters into it, or do the characters come for, uh, come first, and then you figure out what kinds of things would happen to them? So I personally, I love plotting. I love figuring out story elements. I love that kernel of like, ooh, what if this happened? And then I sort of figure out, okay, well, what character would be the most 
what kind of character would be the most interesting person to watch go through that storyline? And that's always kind of how I come up story. A lot of people come at story from, from character and they build out a storyline for them. But for me, like I said, the, what really draws me into stories are those big, like, over-the-top sort of blockbuster action-type storyline. And that, so that's always kind of what sparks my interest in a story in the first place. And then I really have to figure out who is the kind of person that I want to spend 300-plus pages watching them go through all of the things that I'm about to do to them. <laughs> so I kind of come at, I come at it from the story perspective and then try to build out the characters from there. Now, the character Sam Knox loves solving problems or, or mysteries, uh, uh, getting to the bottom of the unknown. And that's... I don't want to say it's it's commonplace, but it's not unusual to have a heroine in an adventure story in this day and age, especially for young adult readers. But setting Sam Knox in the Roaring Twenties makes her kind of an anomaly, doesn't it? Oh boy, yeah. And I don't, it doesn't come up a lot in this first book, but that's the second book, I don't, which I can't reveal the title yet, but it's coming soon. Um, but I've been working on that one with my editor, and that book deals a lot with <laughs> the hurdles that she would face. As, Jenny, as ho- holding back that title is going to make me really disappointed if it comes out Spectre Queen 2. No, <laughs> I told you it's a different adventure. We get to see a different. We get to see her explore a different ancient civilization. So, I'm I'm really excited for when I get to share the title because I absolutely love the title. It's a really good, um, it's a good companion title to Curse of the Spectre Queen. But it's not just Spectre Queen too. <laughs> It's not two specter, two queen. Yeah, I, I was just uh, as you were saying. You know, I can't tell you what the title is right now. And and you know, a lot of uh, sequels or follow ups or or series tend to run numerically. It tends to be the same character yeah. on, on a similar quest, or the quest continued. And uh, it's it's almost as if sometimes. Uh, writers get to the end of the first book in a series and think to themselves, but wait, there's more. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it just sort of continues. I wouldn't on. do that to you. Well, no, and that's, that's, that's why I, uh, that's, that's why I made that little joke with you. Um, <laughs> but the, um, but the idea of this story and this character being set in the Roaring Twenties really makes her an unusual woman in that regard. And as you pointed mm-hmm. out, you're going to explore that more as the series continues. Do you think of this as an ongoing series? Uh, this is the first book, but is it the first in a trilogy or in a five-part series? Or will you keep going if so- the demand stays? That's uh, that's what I would really love because the best thing about this series 
is that there's no dearth of ancient cultures to explore. <laughs> you know, it's not like, you know, human civilization has been around for a few thousand, a few millennia. So I think there's there are lots of really, really fascinating pockets of history that don't get talked about a lot. And that was part of the allure of Curse of the Spectre Queen for me, is that it, it talks about Celtic mythology, which you don't see a lot in 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 these types of stories. You see a lot about Egypt and you see a lot about Greece, but you don't really see a lot about, you know, Celtic and particularly Irish Celtic mythology. And so it was really fun for me to kind of dig into that pocket of history and build this kind of story out around it. And and I think there are lots of really fascinating civilizations and pockets of history that don't get talked about in this genre a lot. And that's what I, I really see Sam digging into because that's, you know, ultimately she's, she's a lover of knowledge. She loves puzzles. She loves lost languages. She loves, she loves cracking codes. I mean, anything that sort of challenges her brain in that way, she's, she's going to pursue it. And so I really love um, I love doing the research too. I mean, it's it's self-serving as well. But we there's it's Curse of the Spectre Queen is the first book. The next book comes out next year, and I hope that people find Sam and embrace her and her story and love it and and, and want to read more about it because I would love to write more about it too. I and I think it's great that you look at some of these different. Uh ancient cultures because you're right a lot of the stories most of the stories really revolve around egypt and the pyramids i mean i mean that's that's like ground zero for ancient civilization yeah and it's fair because they they had an incredible dynasty of culture that ran for thousands of years and they had incredibly complex civilizations but there are lots of civilizations that also achieved really incredible things that just don't get talked about. We tend to think of time as, as like sort of a linear progression, that as, as culture went on, it got more advanced. But that's not really true. I mean, a lot of ancient civilizations were incredibly advanced. They were incredibly advanced in mathematics and in astronomy. They had really advanced... Exactly. They had really advanced agricultural systems. I mean, we tend to think of them, we tend to think of anybody in history as being, like, less evolved than us. That really was not true. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, Spectre Queen Goes to Atlantis. Oh, my gosh. If they ever (laughs) find Atlantis, then I will... There's no, you could not keep Sam out of Atlantis if they ever found a city and they said, you know what, we think it was real. Now, Sam Knox, in in all fairness, and I've been joking around about about the title, the title is Curse of the Spectre Queen. Sam Knox is not the Spectre Queen. No, no. The Spectre Queen is the uh, Celtic goddess of death, the Morrigan. Yeah, so, that's I, another name that she goes by. The I, Spectre Queen. <laughs> I, I didn't. I didn't want to leave people with that impression that somehow the Spectre Queen was the main character. Um, oh no, no, thank you. 
but how much is the um, the time that it's set in a character itself in the book? That is actually a great question, and for me, it's it's a huge part of the character because we don't realize in our modern setting how much of time before a lot of our technology, like before the internet, before cell phones, before even, you know, like a big thing in this book is that air travel was still in its infancy in the 1920s. They didn't have a lot of commercial air travel. People got around on steamers. They got around on trains. They, uh, most people didn't own cars. You know, it was really only something that people in cities or, or wealthier people could afford. And it was a real transition period for a lot of people as far as globalization went. People were still extremely local. And so this concept that Samantha Knott starts out in a, a rural farming town in Illinois and then ends up traveling all the way to Dublin, Ireland in the Roaring Twenties. So a huge part of the book is just trying to get her there and what happens along the way. You know, nothing was instantaneous there. You couldn't just hop on a flight and, and be there in seven or eight hours. It would take you literally weeks to get there and all kinds of hijinks ensue when it takes you weeks to get anywhere. And so that was really a big part of it too. Plus, it was prohibition at the time. And so when you have young people who are, you know, sort of, young people are always testing their bounds, right? They're always pushing on the limits and the rules of society. And so having that, and prohibition was a big part of, of the Roaring Twenties for young people going to speakeasies and bootleggers and, and that whole culture is definitely, definitely plays a part in, in the first half of the story when she's still in the States. So I think that there's a lot of that setting effects their their own feelings about the world and their place in it and who they want to be and what they're pursuing. That's really for Sam a big thing. You know, she's she's the daughter of a farmer who was killed in World War One and a washerwoman. And she's very clever. She has a lot of ambition. But there's really nowhere for that to go for a woman of her stature in the nineteen twenties. And so giving her the strength and the courage to start to pursue what she wants and who she wants to be, despite the, the times and the setting of the world, was really, I think, a good foil for just how anyone feels trying to find their place in the world and their purpose in life. So for me, that was a big aspect of the, the time and the setting as well. And... There's so much that I that I want to dig into about the book, but I'm so afraid of running into spoiler alerts. So, I I, I will keep it more about uh, about process. Um, but how how long does it take to to get a book like this from inception to you know my my den to today <laughs> to when it comes out. Um, so I think some books, books kind of take the time they need to take, especially when you start talking about from inception. So for Curse of the Specter Queen, um, it took me about 
think, eight months to a year to actually have a draft that was worthy of handing over to my editor. But there was also years of just thinking and dreaming and educating myself about the culture that takes place in and the Roaring Twenties and and all of that, and even how archaeology functioned in the 1920s versus today. And so it was really years in the making in my head before I sat down and said, okay, let's make this a story. And my first book, Hood, uh, which was about the daughter of Robin Hood, was the same way. It took me really eight years to to get to a place where it was ready to, to sell to an editor. And a lot of that was honestly just me learning how to be a writer. I wrote other things in between. I wrote multiple drafts of it. You know, it wasn't just an overnight thing. And I think that stories just really, they take time to to really be fleshed out, especially stories like these that, particularly Curse of the Spectre Queen, that has a lot to it. There were a lot of things to research and feel comfortable enough in the knowledge to put it into a book. There, there was a lot of, it's a very, like I said, it's, it's really an Indiana Jones for the, for the young adult crowd. So there's a lot of twists and turns, but also a lot of surprises. There's, secret cult, there's, you know, multiple villains that she has to evade. And so just even structurally figuring all of that out took a lot of time and, and planning. It's the kind of book that you want to read in one sitting, but it took me <laughs> it took me like five years to figure it all out. And if I figured it out right, then you really want to just read it in one setting. What role, what role did the research you did play? Did it did it uh, inform the telling of the story, or did it fill in gaps for accuracy? It's, it's honestly, it's a little bit of both. The thing that I always find really crazy about research that I do for for the historicals that I write is I always kind of have a storyline in mind, and then I think how do I fit this into the real historical context? And, I, and when I'm addressing historical context, I really do try to be as accurate as possible. I try not to take liberties with it because that's part of the fun of, of reading it historical is, is, is realizing, oh, wow, did that really happen? Were those real people? Was that a real event? And so I try to be as faithful to those as possible. But I always think, I have this crazy story idea, and I think, oh, man, but there's no way I could achieve that in that historical setting. And then I'll go do the research. And it never ceases to amaze me how often the research actually, like, backs up the storyline that I already had in my head and how it actually enriches it and, and how, you know, I have this idea, and I'm like, I don't know if I can pull this off, and then I'll go and I'll read about the time period or the civilization or whatever it may be, and I'll go, oh, my gosh, that's perfect. I, I didn't know how I was going to figure out this twist, but now this real historical thing that happened is actually going to facilitate the twist that I needed, or it's going to facilitate this whole scene that I, I need this whole, you know, scene where they're on a train and, and they're being pursued by bad guys and they have to escape. 
but realizing that, oh, this train ride that I, you know, I thought would take like a day actually took like a week, you know, and so something was like, oh, I've got time to, to sort of let them have these things they need to have. So I'm always really amazed at what a favor the time period does me as far as being able to get the real <laughs> historical details into it, but also still have the storyline that I want to have. Well, I'm, uh, the name of the book is Curse of the Spectre Queen by Jenny Elder Moak, and the, uh, it, it promises a great escape for fans of curses, magic, and mystery, and, and people like me who, who like stories set in the uh, Roaring Twenties, especially mysteries. Um, Jenny, it's, we're, we're out of time, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about, about you and the book and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. My website is Jenny Elder Moak, M-O-K-E, dot com. And uh, the book comes out June 1st, 2021, the first book in the series. And I'm actually super excited to share with you and your listeners that it's already been optioned for television. So I can't share any details yet, but if this, if you heard this storyline and you thought, man, I would really love to see it as a show, then stay tuned. It's coming your way soon. I was, I was going to ask you about the, uh, the, the television or film uh, potential of uh, a story like this, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned that. Even though you can't fill us in on more, hopefully, you'll come back and talk more about that and the further adventures of uh, Samantha Sam Knox. Absolutely, I would love to. Well, thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning, um, Jenny Elder Moke. It's been a real uh, real privilege. Yes, thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to talking about the next book when the title is revealed. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Take care. Thank you. That was uh, Jenny Elder Moak, the author of uh, Hood, and now her new book, uh, just out this month, Curse of the Spectre Queen. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <laughs> Citizens, 
Darkwing Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. 
I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. In the past few years, a type of meeting place has grown up throughout the country, which is called a coffee house. There are many uninitiated people who have never been into a coffee house, I being one of them. Uh, We're seated now at a table across from which is a man uh, who seems rather depressed. Uh, uh, sir, uh, you, you are depressed. Uh, uh, would it be getting too personal to ask you why? I'm not pretty. You are depressed because you feel you're not attractive. I'm not attractive. You're not good-looking. No, I'm not. Well, what would you say, sir? That's why if I'm I... mainly depressed. Well, may I, may, I, may I say something to you, sir? Yes. You are a very attractive person. You're as attractive as nine out of 15 people I know. <laughs> you're very kind. But you are. You're not you're an unattractive very, person. You're very sweet. But I, I know that the truth, and I face it every morning. You're a good-looking man, sir. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. <laughs> oh, 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 I see. Oh, I, I, I beg your pardon. Uh, we'll, we'll go over to one of the other tables now okay. and see if we can speak. Uh, Goodbye. Thank you very wow. much, sir. Uh, madam. Madam, um... There's a gentleman sitting here wearing a pair of Levi's, a nicely laundered T-shirt, looking very much like an actor. Uh, I might describe him as looking like a cross between uh, Marlon Brando and Joanne Woodward. (laughs) I I want to explain that. You do have blonde hair. May we sit and talk with you, sir? Uh, If you are so uh, in your mind, too. Yes. Was I right, sir? Was I right? Are you an actor? Yes, I uh, happen to be a uh, lesbian. (laughs) I think, uh, I think, (laughs) I think, sir, I think you, can I check you on that? I think it's, uh, you mean thespian. Well, uh, is that what? Thespian. Thespian, actually. Thespian. Yes, yes. I'll never get that wrong again. Sir, who is your... Who do you consider the greatest actor we have in America today? The greatest actor in America is Tallulah Bankhead. <laughs> I think she's well, she's a, she's a great actress. Yeah, I mean, I don't mean an actor-actress. I mean that she knows what she's doing up there, you know? Well, who else do you like? Who would you pattern yourself after? I would pattern myself after... I love that picture, The Fugitive Kind. I loved it very much. Very much. <laughs> so... I tried to uh, be like Brando with my T-shirt and just look uh, very much like Joanne Woodward, who I love very much. I love her. Well, you know, usually when people... I also look a little like the producer. I love him, too. (laughs) Marty Giroux. Is that again? Marty Giroux. He produced that picture. You'll notice my shoes are exactly like his. (laughs) I love that picture that much that I became everything in it. (laughs) I see. Sir, I think I made a mistake. You're not an actor. No, I'm not an actor, but I'm... But I love to hang out here. Okay. Well, it was a pleasure speaking. Well, it was a pleasure almost to be an actor. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I've got to wend my way through the crowd. Oh, uh, good luck on your wending. <laughs> and goodbye. And if I can do anything for you, you just call upon me, sir. Can I talk to you now? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. okay. I understand. You have to go to other people yes. on the record. I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know that. Right. I watched you before in the coffee house. All right, ladies. Goodbye. So long. I hope I'm an actor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to a corner of the coffee house now. 
Uh, on the walls surrounding this table are many, many paintings. There's a gentleman sitting here with a palette, palette knife, some brushes, some oils, and I imagine that he is the gentleman who painted these paintings. Am I right, sir? That is correct in your assumption. <laughs> and the painting... Uh, you are totally correct. Uh, the painting... And impeccably dressed, if I may say so. Thank you. Thank you very much. A lovely tie. Thank you. Gradually blending into the color of your suit. You are always interested in color and design. Color is my life. I am color. Your name is... Uh, what is your name, sir? Corinne Corfu. <laughs> Corinne Corfu. Uh, you are yes. Greek. I hope I am Greek. I would like to be Greek very much. Well, you're, that is a Greek name, and you have a Greek accent. Yes. Well, then perhaps I am. <laughs> well, don't you know your don't you know your derivation? No, I do not know uh, my derivation. Gypsies stole me as a child. <laughs> a band of gypsies. And you were brought up where? I was brought up in the Persian Gulf, right here in Miami. <laughs> It's the Persian Gulf. No, it's a gypsy tea house. The rest Sir, is called I, the Persian Gulf. I would like to talk to you about your paintings. Now, yes, you certainly may. It's my life. Color are, and art. I are, love art. They are very unusual. I notice that... God bless you for your perceptions. <laughs> I notice one... You also... Uh, you sculpt, too, I notice. There's Main, some, uh, sculpting and painting. All the arts. Uh, there is a, a metallic sculpture there that is very interesting. Yes, metal, metallic. What do you call that? It's just a series of wires uh, in a grid-like effect. What oh, you mean above the door? Yes, what do you call yes, that? Yes, that's called the air conditioning. <laughs> Sorry, sir. I did not uh, make that. No. The, the, the fetters, the fetters company made, but it's very beautiful. Yes. Your paintings are very abstract, I noticed. Yes, but they don't blow air out. So <laughs> like um, the, the machines. No. May I ask you about some of the paintings? For yes, instance, you certainly may. That painting there that is entitled... The Gull on a Hot Rock. Yes. Now, I don't see anything on that but a bunch of little specks. Yes, well, I saw the Gull on a Hot Rock from over five miles away. Uh, oh, I, I see. I was standing on a cliff. That's why I painted in the perspective, the three little dots. Now, uh, getting closer, sir, I'm, uh, may I examine a little more closely? Certainly, not too close. Yes. yes. Now, that is not paint those dots. They look like... that's. Those are flies. Yes, they are. They're flies. But you didn't paint that. Those are real flies. No, I took them, uh, caught them in my hand until the air was out of their bodies and they died. <laughs> and then I... Uh, you pasted them onto the... little dots of blue and put them on the dots and, and they represent the gold on the rocks. I had to kill them. If I had not killed them, if they were not dead and glued to my picture, <laughs> then I have no picture. They fly away, I got nothing, Charlie. I see. The dark. Well, I excuse you. What are you going to buy? Well, sir, may I ask you about this particular abstract? Yes, they're you mainly impressionistic, post-impressionistic, yes. pre-impressionistic, and impressionistic. Yes, this one is more of a, an academician type of painting. No, it's not. Well, for instance, it's very graphic, it's very graphic. Yes, it's, it's very graphic. The, it's very graphic. The, <laughs> it's a draftsman-like quality. The spaghetti looks like spaghetti. The limp salad looks like limp salad. And the garlic oh, bread oh, looks oh, like garlic bread. Oh, oh, no. That's not a picture. That's my supper. <laughs> I, I, it happens to be resting on a frame and in my easel. Oh, that's my dinner. I eat that. Oh, I'm sorry, yes. sir. It looks... Do you like... Wait a minute. Do you really like it? Well, it is. Do you think it looks like the a... The composition a is rather... Of, uh, yes, I thought it was thickly painted. I tell you what. <laughs> if you really like it, I can lacquer it up and give it to you for 40 hours. No, I'm afraid, I'm no. afraid I wouldn't want to take your, deprive right. you of your supper, sir. How about just a coffee and cake? <laughs> Maybe not for 
$20. No, sir. I'm... Give me a dollar and a half for the coffee. <laughs> sir, I'm really not interested. Give me 40 cents you can have. All right, here's 40 cents, sir. All right. Thank you very here's the much. Coffee and cake. Nice working with you. Yes. Sir. I hope you come in again. I will, sir. God bless your can tie. I... I don't want the coffee. No, you want the picture with the flies? No, you just keep Give it. Give me a dime. <laughs> you can have it. I kill more flies. What the hell is it? All right. Goodbye. In a corner of the coffee house is a gentleman sitting with a very, very strange instrument on his lap. Uh, sir, may we speak with you? Hello. <laughs> uh, what is hello. your name, sir? May we get your name? Uh, my name is uh, Charlie Grape. <laughs> Charlie Grape? Yes. Uh, do you perform here at the uh, coffee house? Yes, uh, on occasion I do, and then they, uh, they kind of get mad at me, and then I don't. I think I can get permission for you to play for us. I'd Wait, like. To... Can you? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I would. It's the first time I've ever gotten permission here. Just kind of. We'd certainly like to hear a sample of your music. Certainly. Let me just get tuned up. I'm trying to find an A here. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Got it. First shot out of the box. My A. Now, what are you going to play for us? Uh, twenty-two men. All right, for the record, 22 men. 22 men, here we go. Sung by Charlie Grape. Here we are. (laughs) I get mainly A out of it. I don't get more than A out of it. 22 men fell down and hurt their knees. 22 men fell down and hurt their knees. 22 men fell down, down to the ground. 22 men fell down and hurt their knees. Would you like to hear the release? Do you have one? Yeah. Now, 22 men fell down and hurt their... That's not a release, sir. That's the same as the... uh, Yeah. Bridge. Okay. Okay, how about another completely different song and a new tune? Yes, I'd like it. Can you make it up on the spot? I certainly can. It's my best part. This is extemporaneous. Yeah, whatever. When two German soldiers hurt their knees. (laughs) 22 German soldiers. I think you know that tune. It's very similar to the other one. Yeah, How does it differ? It differs in the fact that the first 22 men were not German soldiers. (laughs) Well, is this a... The second 22 men are German soldiers. Well, it's the same... Can you play... It's the same uh, that they hurt their knee. That's right. You caught me there. Yeah. Can you sing something completely different? Okay. Completely different. You know, the uh, the Calypso balladeers make up songs right on the spot, topical songs. Yes, they Can do. Can you do that? I'll try to. Okay. Okay. 22 Calypso men. Is that what you meant? No, I meant something topical. Something topical? Yes. I'll try something topical. Let's see what's happening in the world today here in our great nation. Got it. Big Dick Nixon hurt his knee. Big Dick Nixon hurt his knee. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Old-fashioned radio. For a new generation TomSumnerProgram.com TomSumnerProgram.com 
Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.